I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. The Armadillo shot was just, that's just pure ridiculous accident. The original script called for there to be a run-over dog in the road. It was shot, a shot of this run-over dead dog and come up to the van going by. The script started with, uh, you know, a shot of the sun. And then the sun was to dissolve into, uh, the, uh, into the glazed portion of a dead dog's eye. And the camera starts moving back out of that. Then you see the van pull up in the background. But they got out to shoot that, and God had given them the most wonderful gift in the world. There was this dead horse by the side of the road. This never happens. You never see a dead horse lying by the side of the road. This was the perfect thing. This giant dead horse covered with flies. The perfect thing to shoot and pull up to this thing. But they didn't want to shoot that because their delicate sensibilities meant that they'd have to get close enough to shoot it and it would just stink. I uh, was out driving around the countryside and saw a freshly killed armadillo that had just been hit by a car, so I took it home and got a book about how to do taxidermy and I taxidermied this armadillo just for the hell of it. So that ended up being the dead thing in the road and not the dead dog. You know, I mean, d domestic creatures, domesticated creatures, and uh, it was just too, too horrible. You've got an armadillo, we'll just put it down on the ground, run over it, you know, and splatter its guts everywhere, and I said, no, you won't. I don't recall ever having the idea of running over his armadillo. <laughs> I respected that armadillo. And they said, okay, we won't destroy it. And Bob, I had no intention of messing up your armadillos, help me God. To me, it's a completely ridiculous looking thing, but then people have, have, have gone into just great pains of glory about this wonderful, spectacularly grand, brilliant opening. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love movies. Hey there, Parallax Fuse listeners. What you just heard was an excerpt from the documentary Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, in which art director Robert A. Burns and filmmaker Toby Hooper discuss how the iconic opening scene of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came to be. I played that because we're going to be talking a lot about Bob Burns on this edition of the program. And I think that clip gives an insight into his eccentric character. Burns, for those that don't know, not only worked on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but other cult classic horror movies such as The Hills Have Eyes and The Howling. Although Burns passed away in 2004, his legacy lives on in the heart of many a cinephile, as evidenced by the fact that he's the subject of a new documentary entitled Rondo and Bob, which details Bob Burns' obsession with the 1940s monster movie actor Rondo Hatton. Rondo was an actor afflicted with a disorder that caused his facial features to become rather brutal, thus leading movie studios to consider him as a possible replacement for the horror icon Boris Karloff in the 1940s. It turns out that Rondo and Bob both had interesting lives, and in a way, they intersect, as shown in the aforementioned Rondo and Bob documentary. Joining us on this edition of the show is that documentary's director, Joe O'Connell, who will not only discuss the lives of Texas Chainsaw Massacre art director Bob Burns and 1940s monster movie actor Rondo Hatton, but also his previous documentary, Danger God, on stuntman Gary Kent, who served as one of the inspirations for Brad Pitt's character in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a fascinating conversation, and given the subject matter, I thought it would be perfect for the spooky season. So, without any further ado, Joe O'Connell, director of Rondo and Bob. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be having on the show, Joe O'Connell of the documentary Rondo and Bob, and also before that, Danger God, about the life of Gary Kent. Um, and Rondo and Bob, I should say, is about uh, the 1940s <clears throat> actor who played heavies in a number of films, Rondo Hatton. Uh, he had a very peculiar look to him. And Bob Burns, Robert A. Burns, uh, who did a lot of the art direction for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But anyways, how are you doing today, Joe O'Connell? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. So, Joe, let's start out by talking a little bit about uh, your background. Uh, you initially uh, worked in uh, the newspaper business before directing right. uh, these documentaries. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I uh, for 12 years combined, I did a column about the film industry. <clears throat> First in the Austin American Statesman, then the Austin Chronicle, and the, then the Dallas Morning News. I noticed that my editors kept changing. They kept getting pushed out the door as there was some shrinking going on uh, and decided that I'd really rather do my own stuff. So I quit. I, I, this, I quit two of those, actually. Uh, one of them just cut me because they were cutting back on size. Dallas Morning News, I just decided to quit. Uh, and I continue to write about films, some mainly in the Austin Chronicle, uh, but I'd rather be doing my own stuff, making my own things instead of writing about it. We'll get into this later, but I find it interesting that you worked um, in the newspaper business and also that the subjects of your latest documentary, uh, Rondo and Bob also worked in uh, journalism for a bit. Yeah, yeah. So before we get into Rondo and Bob, your previous documentary was a film called Danger Man, which is about Gary Kent. And uh, I grew up knowing Gary Kent. Uh, I used to go to this convention, which I know you're familiar with, uh, Cinema Wasteland. Oh, and uh, course, Gary yeah. Kent and uh, Graydon Clark and all these actors associated with uh, Al Adamson, one of the great drive-in movie directors, uh, would be there um, on occasion. Right. And, you know, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people may not know who Gary Kent is unless they're a, a hardcore sort of cinephile. Uh, but Gary Kent is actually the character um, Brad Pitt was modeled after um, in, right. in Once Upon a Time in the well, West. Of, uh, Brad Pitt modeled them, his yeah. character after that. Yeah. Yeah, one of them. Uh, he, he actually did meet Charles Manson. Gary did. Uh, and, you know, thought he was a punk, basically. <laughs> and so that little scene where uh, I think it's, it's Tex Watson kind of gets its cup up, come up and so, or is it another character with the car? Uh, that is really inspired by Gary Kent and Bud Cardos, another guy who was working on all those movies who recently died. Uh, and Bud was asked to, to fix, or Bud asked, uh, or, or Bud owned the Jeep. Gary asked Charles Manson to fix this Jeep because they were hanging around on the Spawn Ranch where they were making movies. And he said, sure. And so then it didn't, didn't happen. And Gary told him, you know, that's Bud Cardos's Jeep. If you don't fix it, he's going to ream you, man. Because, uh, and Bud was a very nice guy, but also very much a badass. And th uh, this is what Gary was saying to Charlie Manson. Yeah, yeah. And so Manson quickly fixed it. Uh, and you can see in the movie, Tar Tarantino talked to Gary. He sat down with him at Joe's Coffee Shop in Austin one day and asked him all these questions with no, no knowledge that he was making this movie. You can see on that set a dune buggy sitting there. And that's a, that's a little Easter egg, I'm sure, uh, you know. Great movie, by the way. I really, I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I think the movie that Al Adamson and Gary Kemp were working on was a movie called Lashes of Lust. But I know there were a few movies being made on George Spawn's Spawn Ranch. I think uh, The Female Bunch with Lon Chaney Jr., which was also an Adamson production, uh, was filmed yeah. there. So you had like the Manson family coming down onto set the Manson girls asking for cupcakes. And I know Gary has told these stories before. Yeah. But it's, a, it's weird. <laughs> And Lash of Lust is a lost film. Uh, if somebody knows where it is, I'd sure like to see it. I searched for it in the process of making Danger God. Uh, no luck. And, and I went to Sam Sherman's house 
Al Adamson's producer. He produ was the producer. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was the guy with all the creativity, you know, all the weird titles and, and all that kind of stuff for the movies. But uh, he did not have a copy of it. And he, he really wants a copy. I don't know what happened. It exists somewhere. You know. Beyond the uh, Charles Manson sort of interaction that Gary Kent was uh, that that Gary Kent had, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit more about Gary Kent and why he's such an important uh, stuntman because he sort of appears in all the different. Yeah, I hate using the term B movie. I want to say independent movies of uh, the '60s and '70s. So talk a little bit more about uh, Gary Kent's career and also how you met him. Some B movies and some really great movies like Targets, Peter Bogdanovich's movie. Which my, one of my favorite Boris Karloff movies. <laughs> yeah, he's, and, and Gary said he was a really nice guy. Uh, you know, and it's inspired by the tower shooting at, at the University of Texas in 1966, which is one of the first big mass shootings in this country. Now they've become commonplace. But, but, uh, so they were inspired with that, with the script. Uh, Gary has been involved in more than 100 films. He... Went out to Hollywood. He was in Texas. He's originally from Washington State. Played football for the University of Washington Huskies with a coach that, and this make this means nothing to you, but it does to me. His coach was Daryl Royal, uh, who went on to the University of Texas to be a longtime coach. Um, but Gary went to Texas. He was in the military. He started doing community theater. He was in Houston, doing all that kind of thing, and he was married. Uh, for the first time and he got on a bus and went to Hollywood and when he got there he was working the piddling jobs that people do when they go to Hollywood with no experience instead he saw the stuntmen working and said hey that's not a bad gig I'd like to do that and so he just talked his way into it and he and he was you know uh, he quickly was working with Jack Nicholson uh, on, they made a couple of films called Riding the Whirlwind and the Shooting Simultaneously, a couple of Westerns. Gary got on that and he didn't know what he was doing. And so he, you know, he was going to get himself hurt. And the other stuntmen started training him uh, and, and he got to know what, what he was doing. But he was in all these, all these movies, you know, he just kept doing it. He was in, uh, he worked with Richard Rush, who was nominated for Best Director for The Stuntman. A film that Gary did not ironically work on. Uh, he was busy with his, another project, uh, but he did stuff like Hell's Angels on Wheels, Hell's Bloody Devils with uh, Al Adamson, Schoolgirls Satan Satan's Sadus, Schoolgirls in Chains for Don Jones, all of these wild movies. Uh, you know, he, and he became part of the regular crowd for people like Al Adamson and. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name. Ray Dennis Steckler? Steckler, yeah, for Steckler and people like this. And it was like, get a job, work, do it, do some more. You know, and, and Gary really revels in the fact that this scene existed then. This was the drive-in movie scene, you know. Uh, I where think there's even a connection between uh, Gary Kenton and um, Ed Wood. I think he's in a, an Ed Wood, Wood scripted movie, One Million ACDC. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is just a crazy movie. Just crazy. <laughs> um, but the idea was just go do it, you know, and, and they had no rules 
and you know the they were just making movies making flawed movies and then stuff came along like targets for bogdanovich and those movies with nicholson uh you know those were were beautiful films that still stand up really well and then i Gary's was gonna say mission. real quick it, it's huh? so interesting because i think People will talk about independent films and the B-movies back then, but there's this weird sort of crossover at times between the B-movies and sort of almost like art house type movies. Because like people like Bogdanovich were working for Corman, and then you had Monte Hellman who did Ride in the Whirlwind. And right. I would say Hellman was sort of like an auteur, and so was Bogdanovich. So you sort of had this crossover oh, yeah. between the exploitation cinema world and the more uh, auteur type world of cinema. Yeah. I had a weird thing with Hellman, which is that he, he didn't really want to talk to me for my film. Uh, and then he eventually said, you know, I'll maybe be on camera, but I don't want to be on, I don't want to be in video. Cause he thought he, he looked old and he had had health issues and I couldn't get him to do it. So I found out that his, that he rented out his house, a portion of his house on Airbnb. And so I became an Airbnb customer showed up at his house, sat down at his, at his kitchen table and talked to him and finally got him to agree to, to be on video. So you got, got to sometimes fight for that. But he lived in this place that is straight out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a, you know, up in the hills, one of those houses that are vaguely mid-century modern. Not very big, really, but kind of interesting, you know. And, and uh, you know, he talked to us a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And, and he, you know, and he's gone now, too. So which is the sad thing. So many of these guys are gone. That's why I'm so glad you're sort of preserving the memory um, with these sort of documentaries on these figures. Uh, because so many of them have left us now. But what was it about Gary Kent that uh, you were really drawn to? And maybe you could talk about how you uh, ended up meeting him and then making the documentary Danger God. Sure. Uh, I met Gary at a writer's conference in Austin, Texas, a million years ago. And I came home afterward, you know, he was this guy with his briefcase and he was hawking what would eventually become his memoir. It's called Shadows and Light. Uh, and I came home and told my then girlfriend, now wife, I met this really fascinating guy, I should write about him, but I didn't get his contact information. So I finally tracked him down, went to his house. He was living in Austin on the edge of Austin uh, and interviewed him and wrote a couple of articles about him. And we became friends uh, after that. And his memoir was finally going to come out. It was going to have a big release party in Austin. And I kept saying, someone needs to do a documentary about you. And at that moment, I realized it was put up or shut up that I was the guy to do it. So I moved forward, I hired two camera crews unnecessarily uh, and started filming that day and started teaching myself how to make a film. So uh, just real quick for people uh, that may be wondering, you've often said that Gary Kent is, is, you know, the world's most interesting man. And you sort of alluded to how he was part of a no holds barred uh, sort of um, style of filmmaking, guerrilla filmmaking in the 60s and 70s. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about what made that era of filmmaking, especially the indie world of filmmaking, so no holds barred? Were there any stories that Gary had that really exemplify that? You know, like Steckler had no scripts. 
he basically expected the actors to go out and do it. And a lot of these people were just making it up as they, as they went along. They just wanted to make movies. I don't know if it's that much different now. It's actually, you know, easier to make a movie now than it was back then because you just use video. Uh, and so it's cheaper. Um, I don't know. It was just the end of it all. There had been the code, you know, the, the uh, Hollywood code that said you couldn't do certain things. And they stepped around the code and, and you know, smashed it down and, and just made their stuff. You mean uh, like the morality codes, like the Hayes yeah, code type stuff? Code. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I follow a thing on Facebook that is uh, a page about pre-code films, and I find that really fascinating. No, it's. I mean, it's it's it's, hmm? it's amazingly fascinating when you watch yeah. films like The Black Cat or Murders in the Rue Morgue, and you realize like they have all this violent stuff in them. You know, there's like in The right. Black Cat. There's like weird S and M type imagery in it. And it's like, wow, after the Hayes Code came around, like film changed completely for years. Yeah, it really did. And I, and I think that's why that indie film scene in the 60s and 70s mattered, is that it was, it was destroying that and moving past it. And that's why mainstream films of the 70s are considered to be some of the best. And I think it's because those indie films paved the way and they could do what they wanted finally. Yeah, and just to give people an idea real quick, I mean, you mentioned the movie Targets, Peter Bogdanovich. I know there were films that they seen on the they filmed on the uh, the highway, you know, scenes that they filmed on the highway uh, in that movie, and they didn't have a permit. They just did it, you know. Oh. So it was they did wild stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and it's what we're still doing today. <laughs> I know I did that kind of thing. We did that kind of stuff with Rondo and Bob. Uh, so then, uh, so so you got a whole crew together for Danger God. And then what, what happened with it coming together? Because it's often been said that Danger God almost plays like two different movies at times. It does, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really want to insult people, but when you're making a movie, you have to make a movie and you have to be in charge of it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I know story really well. I have an MFA in creative writing. I have a, a novel out. Uh, you know, and, and got other stuff since then. But I didn't know the whole filmmaking process and I had to learn it. And so my thought was, here, take this from me and make it into a movie. Doesn't really work that way. Instead, I hooked up with someone who sat down with me and we edited the movie together. I also realized that I had to make more of the movie that, that I saw. The first, I think the first half of the movie is more traditional documentary. The second half is me with a camera like this, which has great 4K quality, going and shooting. So the second half is more of Gary Kent's story. And I had to go do that myself. And, you know, the story is a stuntman battles all this stuff, but real life is tougher. And I think Gary says that at some point. And so I went to the doctor's office with him. I flew Gary to uh, Washington State for his sister's funeral. And I had to figure out how to do that. You know, he, he's going to give a eulogy at the graveside, but the sound is horrible. And so I shot him in the car practicing. And we did some sort of overlay of that. 
at the graveside. So I had to just start doing it myself. Um, and the film has its roughness, but I think it's appropriate for, for what it is. And I think it is a stronger film because it tells a strong human story. Yeah, I think there is a really human story uh, to Gary Kent's whole life, especially because, I mean, he was doing stunt work up until the 2000s. I think his last one was uh, Bubba Hotep, uh, the great Don Coscarelli movie with uh, right. Bruce Campbell, which is that's a very moving movie in an odd way because it is about aging and, and being being elderly and sort of, I, I think it has commentary in there about how society kind of discards people as they right. age, but it, it's a wonderful movie. And then you learn that Gary Kent, I, I think he got injured on the set of it and he couldn't do stunt work anymore, right? Yeah, he was the stunt coordinator, took one wrong step, fell down a hill, messed his leg up. And that was pretty much the end of it. A film that is based on a Joe Lansdale story, by the way, of a hotel. People should read the story. Uh, Joe Lansdale is an incredible pulp writer, uh, which is probably a bad thing to say about him because I think he's also quite literary at the same time. But he's great. Uh, Gary, but Gary continues to work. He's 89 years old. He was in a movie a couple of months ago. He continues to be asked to do stuff and he'll do it, you know, if the, if the situation is right. I mean, he's 89, so he's, he's an old guy, uh, but he's still getting around and he's still fairly vital. Almost all of the stunt guys that we talk about in Danger God have died in the last couple of years which is really sad. Chuck Bale, who was the, the stuntman in the movie, The Stuntman. Uh, Don Jones, who directed Gary in uh, Schoolgirls and Chains and The Forest. Uh, Bud Cardos, who was in, who, whose story is incredible. His story would make a great movie. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Bud Cardos. I like a lot of the movies he directed, um, like Kingdom, uh, Kingdom of the, of the Spiders. The Spiders. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if he directed it, but he's in this old Cameron Mitchell movie called Nightmare in Wax that I really enjoyed. Um, okay. he's, he, these people show up in everything. I mean, I was just watching, I had a guest on um, last Halloween, uh, Todd Sheets, who made this werewolf yeah. movie called Bone Hill Road. And which Gary, uh, which Gary is in. Right. I, I was watching it and Gary Kent just showed up and I'm like, oh my God, that's Gary Kent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these guys are legends in my book. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. We've, we've lost so many of them. Uh, Bud, you know, Bud, Bud was, entire life was incredible. He was in, a, he was in sh performing when he was a little kid. His, his uh, family had a theater in Los Angeles and he was doing all kinds of things. And then he was a trick roper. He was really, his, he had total control of his body and he could do anything. And so he made a perfect stunt man. Uh, and he also was an actor and he's Greek. So they would often cast him as a, as a Native American in movies because he was darker skinned. Uh, and he had, a, had a, he had a thing with animals. He had a chimp and he, there's stories that he would tell about taking a chimp on a plane. Uh, and uh, maybe also a cougar was running around hotel rooms, you know, crazy stuff. But uh, he was a wild guy. It was great to be able to meet all them. With regards to Gary Kent and these stuntmen, and I do want to move on to Rondo and Bob, but I guess one thing I wanted to get at, uh, two things actually. First, I thought it was interesting that you said when Gary Kent started out in 
doing stunt work that he didn't really know what he was doing. And then slowly these other stunt people sort of uh, took him under their wing. It sort of reminds me of how, you know, the territorial days of pro wrestling war where, you know, um, back when it was like a regional thing, they kind of slowly let the guys in on the fact that it's all work. And, you know, once they think you're ready, they, they sort of teach you all the sort of carny tricks of the trade. In a way, it sounds similar to that um, with Gary Kent, where he didn't know what he was doing at first, but slowly they sort of take him into the secret world of stunt work. Yeah. And he had a background. You know, he was he was a guy who rode horses and uh, played sports, lived outdoors as a lot as a kid in, in rural Washington state. So he, he was prepared for it, but he really just wanted to be an actor and then, and then a director. He wanted to make his own movies. What was maybe uh, the the biggest thing you learned about stunt work uh, when making that film? And then we can also go back to uh, how did Gary sort of manage after his stunt days were over? Um, It comes from Bud Cardis, and it's in the movie. He says that the, the thing about you can't think about it when you're doing a stunt. You have to just do it. I think about it, uh, I went bowling with my wife and son the other day. And when I was in college, I took a class in bowling. And I was explaining, my son's friend was there too. And I was explaining to the friend that I took a class in bowling. So I suck at bowling. Because I think of all, every time I roll that ball, I think about what they taught me in that class. And it keeps me from being a better bowler if that makes any sense. And so you just have to kind of do it instinctively, but you also bring in all the practice of, of those stunts that you've done before. And so to me, that was, that was the message. If you really want to do this thing, you know? Yeah. I think that's a great point because, you know, I, I, I remember, um, you know, seeing uh, Kane Hodder who famously has played Jason in a bunch of the Friday, the 13th movies, uh, just for my listeners that may not be familiar and it's crazy hearing him talk about stunt work because this is a guy who literally, I think, has the longest scene of, of, of being on fire, literally on fire. Um, and it's it's like I have always wondered, how, how are you able to do that? Because you have to you can't really, you know, be thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be on fire. You kind of just have to do it or you're probably going to get scared and maybe reconsider doing it. So it sounds like Bud Cardo's had the right idea there. It's almost like you, know, you yeah. just have to do it. You can't think have second thoughts. Yeah, unfortunately, with the fire thing, I think it's more about the person who preps you. You know, you have to have the padding and you have a layer of Vaseline or whatever. I'm no pro on this, but I've seen it uh, in the process of making that film. I saw it a couple of times. Uh, And you have to just, you know, be in that moment and not freak out, I guess. Uh, A friend made a film that Gary is also in uh, called Frame Switch. And I was there a day that they did a fire scene. A guy gets a, a flaming tire put around him and he sits there and burns. It's a, it's a mob hit type situation. Uh, and it was kind of wild to watch, but there were pros all around waiting with fire extinguishers. You know, they were prepared for it, but it's crazy. It's crazy to watch. In terms of, real life being even tougher than doing stunt work. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on what you meant on that. And I don't want to spoil the whole documentary, but as I know it's on Tubi now, so people can watch it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, it, it, it's just the challenges you face. He lost his wife. He had cancer many times. Uh, you know, he had that condition called uh, multiple myeloma. And so he just was battered by all this stuff. And then he had his, his heart valve replaced. And it was very funny. I, mean, I was talking about it with my little camera. I'm in the doctor's office. They say, can you walk down the hall and back to Gary? Because most people can't do that, who they see. Uh, and so you just, you know, uh, so no problem. So it's, it's that kind of thing. And, and losses, you know, the losses of life. The reason people like Gary is that he is a kind person and he's optimistic about life. I think that's why he's still around. Mentally, yeah, it sounds like he's someone that got to do what he wanted in life. And in a way, that's sort of what has helped keep him alive in some ways. Yeah. Uh, most of us have to have a day job, which sometimes we dread going to. And I talked about that with Gary the other day, and I said, you didn't really do that that much. You know, he did a little bit in, in the early, his early days in Hollywood, but not as a rule. You know, he, he just kind of did the things he wants to do, and he's still that way. He's working on a book right now, another book. Uh, I think he's worked on two, a second memoir, and one about uh, dogs, dogs he has known in his life. He's a big dog lover. Uh, so, yeah, and that's his, me his message. This is really in the end of the movie. He says... Find something you like to do and do it for the rest of your life, which is a great philosophy, really. You know, don't waste your time on stuff that other people make you do or what you think you're supposed to do. Do what you want to do. And, that's, and I took that message to heart myself and started doing things. Instead of saying, oh, I'll get to that eventually. I'll get to that when I have money. I'll make a movie when I have a big investor. Just make the damn thing, you know? <clears throat> make an imperfect piece of art. Some people are going to hate it no matter what you do, you know? Uh, what can you do about that? You just make another one. So it's interesting because we've been talking about Gary Kent a lot, but we kind of needed to do that in order mm -hmm. to get to your new movie, Rondo and Bob, because not only is Gary Kent in the movie, but... He's also integral to how the movie got made. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, yeah. making Rondo and Bob and, and how it came to be uh, thanks to Gary Kent. Yeah, uh, Bob Burns, I had never met Bob Burns. Bob Burns was the art director on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as well as an, a lot of other really uh, important horror films. The Hills, the Hills Have, Have Eyes, The Howling. Howling. Yeah, Reanimator uh, and more. Uh, and, and Bob was a serial blood donor in Austin, Texas. I was writing my first column for the Austin American Statesman, and there was a big event. Bob reached the five-gallon mark in his donations. So, you know, it, and he probably liked the humor of that because Bob was a punster. Uh, and so he, they had a big event at the blood bank. The walls were covered with his posters. Gary, Gary knew him and introduced me to him and said, come on down, you should talk to him. And so, you know, it's interesting. This is, this, you know, this is well before making this movie, Rondo and Bob. And when I'm working on Rondo and Bob, I'm working with a film editor and the film editor is looking at old footage. He goes, I'm looking at this old footage I shot of Bob Burns at the blood bank. And Gary Kent walks in the room 
And I said, yeah, and I'm right behind him. He said, there you are. It was like it was fated that, that we would do it. Uh, so through Gary, I met Bob, uh, you know, I wrote about him. I wrote in my column about his obsession with Rondo Hatton and how Bob went to Florida, went to Tampa, Florida to accept a Hall of Fame plaque on behalf of Rondo as the biggest Rondo fan in the world. Uh, Bob was a very, this is our tagline for the movie in many ways. Bob was a very normal looking guy who was weird. He was extremely creative, could make anything, uh, which is why he was, his work on Texas Chainsaw Massacre is looked back on so fondly. He created those leather face masks. He collected all those bones and decorated the sets. <clears throat> but uh, at the, on the other hand, Rondo was a very normal guy, an all-American kid, a good athlete who really just wanted to be a coach. Uh, but he contracted this condition called acromegaly during World War I. Uh, and there's the question of whether he, it, it, he got gassed with mustard gas during the war. Question of whether that caused this or whether it was just, uh, just happened. It's a pituitary gland tumor that causes the face, the hands and the feet to grow really large. And so Rondo came back from the war and he started looking stranger and stranger. He got married, he was working as a sports reporter in Tampa. Uh, his wife left him when he, as we say in the movie, when he became both poor and ugly. I mean, she verbally uh, abused him over how he yeah. was looking because his face was changing. I mean, it's weird because like, I don't, it's funny, I agree with Fred Olin Ray in your documentary. I don't think Rondo Hatton looked horribly ugly. He kind of looked like a, 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 a guy from a gangster movie in, right, in a weird way. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he ends up, I guess, going to Hollywood and almost uh, becoming the would-be replacement for like the Boris Karloffs of the day. Right. He was slated to be the Boris Karloff's replacement, uh, but he died because the condition is just unrelenting uh, and caused heart attacks that, that led to his demise. He was in his 40s when he died. So Rondo and Bob, so I realized, okay, so we finished with Danger God, and I'm seeing this footage from my editor who had worked with me on Danger God. He's the guy who helped me to get it done and get it out in the world. Uh, as the imperfect beast it is. And I said, you know, that would make a good movie. But it can't, it, you know, Bob would make a good movie by himself, but I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in the way Bob is obsessed with Rondo. Uh, you know, and the way Bob, through Gary, I knew more about Bob than Bob told me. Bob called Gary frequently and said that he was considering suicide, that he was an unhappy guy, that he felt like he was incapable of love. And so that is an underlying theme in the movie. While we're writing about this art director and this guy who was known as the Creeper, we're also writing, a, doing a very serious story about that, about that search for love. Uh, and so that's what I think makes it more than just a you know regular documentary. I, I hesitate to even call it a documentary. Yeah, because there's a lot of uh, interesting sort of, what you do is you have actors sort of recreating 
Uh, yeah. Bob Burns' life and then Rondo's life. There were a few familiar faces even I noticed. I know uh, Sonny Carl Davis, uh, who has been in a bunch of Charles Band movies, Evil Bong, uh, shows oh, yeah. up in the movie as uh, playing someone who knew uh, Rondo, yeah. playing a character who knew Rondo. So, Yeah, uh, he's also in Fast Times Rouge Mont High. Yes, yep. You know, uh, yeah. I just asked him to do it. Uh, and, you know, I thought he would be a, a cool guy to do it. I saw a movie called Becoming Bond about George Lazenby. Uh, for both of these films, Danger God, it was the story of, uh, oh, what the hell's his name? Uh, uh, it'll, uh, it'll come to me, but it, there's a movie called The Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Town. Uh, it's the story of Robert Town. And I saw that and that, became my guiding principle for Danger God, which is Gary had to tell the story. You know, that Gary had to be front and center all the, as much as possible. Uh, for, for Rondo and Bob, I saw this movie, Becoming Bond, about George Lazenby, who was uh, basically a model who talked his way into being James Bond and then quit. The movie was half George Lazenby sitting at, you know, well-lighted stage, talking and telling his stories, the other half recreations with an actor who didn't particularly look like him. Uh, and I thought, okay, Bob Burns is dead, Rondo Hatton is dead, how am I gonna do this? And I thought, I'll, I'll do that. And by the way, Becoming Bond got flack for that, uh, which is interesting. I choose stuff that people are already resistant to. You either like that or you hate it. Uh, and, and our film is a low budget film, so it's low budget recreations, you know, but I, I feel like we did things really well on our low budget. Um, so, so we have that combination of those two. I don't know what the original question was, I forgot. <laughs> well, I was saying just the recreations uh, yeah. aspect of the film is really interesting because I, I think it's a great way to show the, I mean, there's parallels in the lives of Bob Burns and Rondo Hatton. You know, they both worked yeah. in, uh, I, I think, magazines, newspapers, journalism, uh, but there's also differences because, you know, Bob Burns, this normal looking guy that, you know, is kind of weird um, with everything he does. I mean, this is a guy who took a, a dead armadillo off the side of the road and taxidermied it to use it in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Whereas Rondo is the person that, you know, he looks uh, very odd, but you know, everyone loved him because they just thought he was a nice, normal guy. I mean, he married a beautiful wife that looked past how he looked, um, you yeah. know, his second marriage. So they're very parallel lives. There's things you can compare about the two, but there's also major differences between the two as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we just tried to, you know, blend those two together. Uh, the, the movie is in many ways a collage. It's been called a, a love letter to fans. I had in our editing office, I had color coded post-it notes, one color for Bob, one color for Rondo. Some were half and half. Uh, and I, when it came to the editing process, I moved those parts around. Some people don't like that I did that. Uh, I, I get that, but other, other people I think are getting what, that was all intentional. It was not accidental. Uh, I wanted to make sure that Rondo was not on the, on the screen so long that you would say, well, where's Bob? and vice versa, you know? And, and it, it is in many ways a story of film fans, 
of horror fans. Could you, um, well, I want to get into that a little bit about how it's a story of horror fans. But one thing I found really interesting is that throughout the documentary, we're given this impression, uh, especially when Bob Burns is talking about, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He'll say, eh, you know, I didn't really like that movie that much. I thought it was too over the top. Uh, I was never really a horror movie guy. But it's kind of interesting that he says that, that he's not a horror movie guy. And yet he's obsessed with Rondo Hatton, who... I, I think Rondo is known for the uh, sort of horror movies and noirs he was in, like The Pearl of Death, uh, right. the Sherlock Holmes movie, or House of Horrors, and then The Brute Man, all of which he plays this this sort of same character, The Creeper. The creeper. Yeah. Uh, so you have Bob Burns on one hand saying, I don't really like horror movies that much, but he's obsessed with this actor who is basically in Creature Features. It's a strange thing. Yeah, Bob Bob was a trained actor. He had, had a degree in acting from the University of Texas. And he was a great set designer. So that's what led him, you know, it could have been any kind of movie. Because he was involved with Chainsaw, these people, uh, you know, hunted him down. These, these other directors of horror films hunted Bob down and said, please come work on my film. He wanted to quit after Chainsaw. Uh, and, and I don't think he was, you know, he hated Chainsaw too. Uh, because it was too over the top. And he, you know, he had the guiding principle as an art director that you should not notice the art direction. It should instead affect you emotionally, which is the whole deal with Chainsaw Massacre, uh, a movie that is quite unbloody, uh, which is part of Bob's doing too, but is one of the, the creepiest movies ever, you know? And it, it's because of, People like Bob, uh, you know, the guy who did the sound for the film, the music, uh, you know, and of course, Toby Hooper and his vision. Uh, again, I feel like I'm not answering the question really, but it is weird that, that Bob didn't really like horror, uh, that, he, that he loved Rondo at the same time. I think that Rondo became this kind of uh, symbol of what Bob saw as his own inner ugliness, you know, uh, a projection of it. He felt inside that he looked like Rondo uh, and wanted to be who Rondo was really inside, which is this person who connected well with the world. Bob did not connect well with the world. There's, there's that thing about kids, that little kids don't play with other kids, they play next to them. They do co-play and that was kind of Bob as an adult. And that was what he was dealing with, you know, all his life. It's tough. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I do think, I, I could see what he means, but I don't really like horror movies. Uh, even though he's into things like, I mean, he, he obviously, if you watch the film, he loved Halloween and doing like costumes and whatnot, but he almost has this sort of, it's almost in this dark sense of humor kind of way. You know, it's, he sort of has this comedic streak to him more than a, uh, a hard horror streak. <laughs> yes, and, and the films that he made, the stuff that we highlight in the, in the movie that were never released, this movie he made, Scream Test, is just, you know, it's pure corny comedy, uh, even though it does relate to horror a little bit, and people are killed. Uh, as Bob would say, over and over again, they are killed. Uh, <clears throat> that's my Bob Burns impersonation. Uh, 
but yeah, he, he was, Bob was incredibly corny. I, I saw one review of the film that I thought was funny. It was mostly a positive review, but they hated the actor who played Bob. It's like they hated him because he was playing Bob. Because, and they said, he, he's too over the top. And it's like, that was Bob. And, and you know, maybe that didn't get, come across enough for them or they didn't realize it because Bob's not a famous enough person for people to know that. But Bob Burns was a very corny guy. Uh, he loved to make you groan. You know, took great pleasure in it. He, he enjoyed the cringe humor, as the kids would right. say. <laughs> what yeah. do you think it is about you know, the art direction in a film like Texas Chainsaw or even the work he did on The Hills Have Eyes or, you know, the scenes in The Howling where we're going into the serial killer Eddie Quist's apartment. What, what do you think makes his art direction so iconic? I, I think that you he got at what these people were like, how creepy these people were. And you can imagine walking into this place and saying, what have I gotten myself into? I got to get out of here quick, you know? Uh, there's just an unease. And he did weird things like the uh, chicken in the cage and, and chainsaw, which Bob thought was very funny. Uh, and I, do we, I don't know if I had that in the movie or not, where other people were saying that the chicken kept dying and so they would have to go replace it and they tried never to let Bob know because he would be really pissed that the chicken kept dying. But they, it had to be replaced over and over again. Uh, and you're doing this in August in Texas in what, uh, as far as I can tell, was an incredibly hot summer. Probably much like the one we're, we're going through right now here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just the attention to detail, but not being overly splashy, you know? Well, and the way he was able to do these things on such a low or in some cases, no budget affair is what's yeah. really wild about it. Yeah. And, and, you know, his girlfriend, Mary Church, who was also the, at the time girlfriend, uh, who was also this, the lone stunt woman in the film. He's in, the one that jumps through the window. Yes. Um, Marilyn yeah. Burns sort of stunt double. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Mary Church is, is a working, uh, uh, what do you call it? The person in charge of this show, the showrunner. I think she's a showrunner these days. She's quite successful. Uh, but Mary Church, her family had a ranch near Dallas. And when the cattle died, they just left him sitting there. And they decomposed. And so Bob went up and had his choice of all kinds of uh, skeletons, you know. He didn't pay any money for that stuff. He just found it all. I found myself in the weird place of being Bob Burns and that I had to go and look and find that stuff to recreate his office, you know, to fill it with bones. But I just went, I went to garage sales and that kind of thing, borrowed stuff from people who lived out in the country. Something that's really interesting to me, and I did not expect you to cover it in the documentary, was this little movie from the 80s that you know, Robert Burns went from doing art direction to actually starring in a movie. And it's a movie very few people remember called Confessions of a Serial Killer. And I think it actually was made before Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, but it's, it's sort of dealing with the same subject matter, the, yeah. you know, Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, but in a way it's, I mean, 
in some ways it's even more gritty than Henry. It's it's much more exploitative in some ways, but it's Robert Burns as Henry Lee Lucas. And there are scenes in that movie uh, when I watch it, uh, when I watched it when I was like 15, I still remember these scenes where, you know, um, Robert Burns as Henry is getting interrogated by the police and he's just like, well, can I have another milkshake? And you know, he's really creepy in that movie. So I was so glad that you covered uh, Confessions of a Serial Killer. And I was wondering if you could comment on why you included it in the movie, why you felt it was uh, oh. important enough to include. Yeah, it's, it, it's a pivotal moment for Bob because he was a trained actor. These, these folks were making this movie and their their lead actor dropped out on them. I think he went had got a good job in Hollywood and left. And so they looked out and Bob was already the art director on this film. He was outside and he was making Polaroids that they were using the film, throwing blood around on actresses and just cackling with laughter. And they looked at him and they said, hey, <laughs> that's our guy. Uh, and they were desperate. It's kind of a situation similar to Gunnar Hansen getting uh, the Leatherface role in Chainsaw at the last minute. Uh, and I think Bob just loved it. And, and it, we had a whole segment of Bob acting that we cut out of the film. Uh, he was in a ton of low budget films, uh, much like Gary, much like Gary Kent. And he loved to act. So, it, it, and it kind of fits in with the whole thing. Uh, there is a bit of the Bob Burns curse, things that he was involved with that were not successful. And that was one of them. It was cursed because that those two movies came out roughly in the same time frame. And the other film I think was a little bit more known than Confessions. It's, the Confessions of Serial Killer is, has been re-released in the last year. And so it's out there available to stream. Well, the, the streaming is important for that movie because for years, all you get were these cut versions. And I think the yeah. producer uh, has the rights to it now and it's been released on like YouTube and Amazon, but it's the yeah. whole movie. It's the uncut actual movie. Yeah, It's the real thing, yeah. Yeah, John Dwyer, who, who directed it uh, under a pseudonym because he was working for Disney, I think, at the time. And, and you know, it wouldn't look good to be working on this kind of thing. Uh he got the rights back and has re released it. So it's out there. I don't know if it's on Tubi or not, but it's out there streaming in a lot of places uh, fairly recently. He, he, he and I have the same sales agent. So. It's interesting too, because I think what was interesting was hearing about how Bob Burns actually like really tried to get into this role of Henry Lee Lucas so much so that he was like researching everything about it. And I think he's a better... Henry Lee Lucas than the guy in the other film. And I don't Rooker, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, he's creepier. You know, and he, he just plays it perfectly. They got lucky. They didn't know he was a trained actor. You know, that he'd been doing it for years. Uh, you know. Yeah, he was a dialogue coach, too, for um, I'm blanking on her name. Vanessa Redgrave. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, those it's, ivory merchant films that, that were done in Austin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was the, the film itself was a wreck because, uh, I mean, not the finished product, but the production, people were not getting paid. Uh, and I wonder if Bob got paid. I assume he did. Yes. So Vanessa Redgrave has this weird accent that is not really a Texas accent because Bob had a weird 
way of talking. I thought, I feel like I can do Bob Burns, that I can, that his actual voice is kind of like this. Uh, and it's a little fussy. Uh, and uh, you can see Vanessa Redgrave in the little clip we have in the film that she is doing him because she's a great actress and so she's picking this, okay, this is my model. I'm gonna do it, you know? But that's not, that's not a very Texas accent at all. What's really know. interesting to me about Bob Burns is, um, and this sort of briefly gets mentioned, but he seems to be obsessive and very detail oriented. So whether he's, you know, arguing with Toby Hooper about, no, we have to do this for Texas Chainsaw and for this reason. And he's very fine tuned on the details, even in playing Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, you talk about how he actually like, I think he spoke to some of the investigators. Like he really threw himself into these things and he wanted all the details. Um, even in making a movie like Mongrel, which he directed, uh, he was very detail oriented. He knew, you know, how am I going to get this made? Oh, I'll put some name star in it, like Auto Ray, film him for like one day, have him in it at the beginning and the end. He really had all the details down all the time. And there is sort of this, I, I don't know, there's like this question of uh, maybe this dude was on like the spectrum somehow or Asperger-ish right. or um, yeah. maybe you could, because th there is this sort of inner turmoil that he has and it could be a, a mental thing. It could just be his relationship with his mother. What do you personally think it is? It's a little bit of those two. Uh, you know, we had the interesting thing of Bob's brother, Fred Burns, who is a psychoanalyst and lives in Canada, came into Austin for just like a, a day or two. And we got alerted and we went and met him at his, uh, at Fred's, Fred Burns' son's apartment. The apartment was very spartan. It had no furnishings. It had a big stack of CDs. Uh, and that was about it. And we, we started interviewing Fred and he was talking about how he, he diagnosed Bob with attachment disorder, which is something that, that people have when they're young and they feel separated from their mother. But he talked about that and then I said, let's talk to your son. And the son basically said, you know, that he was, that he had been diagnosed with Asperger's and he thought that this was common in the Burns family and that Bob was on the spectrum. And we're like, oh, geez, you know, when you're making a movie, we had no expectation of that, of that part of the message. And it made complete sense. And I think that was Bob, uh, you know, David Byrne, uh, the talking heads, uh, is on the spectrum, supposedly. Uh, and that kind of fits with Bob. That level of detail and creativity, but perhaps standing back a little bit. And there is a regret to standing back, you know? We, we don't, as human beings, want to be alone. And I think Bob felt alone too much. And that's the big irony. We, ha we have footage from his memorial service and there are tons of people there. And the guy talking at that <laughs> says that Bob felt he, he didn't have any friends. And yet here are hundreds of them coming together to honor him. You know, it, it's a strange thing. I wish he'd stuck around. I think yeah, it's really been. interesting because I, I guess you could say he didn't, he didn't know how to like make deep sort of connections, but at the same time, he seems rather um, affable. I mean, I know that you've said elsewhere that some people could find him overwhelming, but 
I, I yeah. think most people found him very good natured and, and kind of humorous in his own weird way. Um, like he's not entirely socially awkward either, but he's also sort of doing his own thing at all times. Uh, he's a very singular character in that sense. And he, you know, he was tough. He, he was very precise and he thought you should do things the way he wanted them done. Uh, do you think th that's why he had troubles with Hollywood? Yes. Yeah. He, he didn't like anything about Hollywood. He just left and came back to Austin where he lived a pretty meager existence. He still made stuff and he did it more on his own terms, but I don't think he could handle that machine. I don't think he could play the Hollywood politics at all. Uh, this did not make it in the film, but the lady who lived next door to him in Seguin the day before he killed himself. Yeah, because he moved to Seguin Mm -hmm. uh, from Austin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Seguin's a small town, you know, hour and a half away from Austin, something like that, hour and a hour and a half. Uh, he went there because he, because he could live more inexpensively. But the lady next door had a party the night before Bob died. And she thought about inviting Bob and she told me, I just couldn't handle him. So she didn't invite him. She felt bad about it. You know, maybe if she'd invite him to the party, he'd still be around. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, but so that was common for people to be a little overwhelmed by it. One of the scenes that really stood out for me, and I don't want to spoil everything in the documentary, but, uh, you know, there's that scene where you have someone talking about uh, a story Bob told where when he was real young, he saw someone get hit by a car. And they were laying there dead. And uh, right. someone was making a comment about, oh, is he dead? And, and Bo young Bob just says, of course he's dead, you knucklehead, look at him. Right. <laughs> This is the weird thing about making a movie like this. Uh, and, and, you know, I have the power, but also the responsibility. And so we interview this guy and he tells us that story. And I look at my, my shooter and I say, oh, well, I guess we got to shoot that now, too. And I have to go. And this is low budget. So I have to find us a place to shoot it. I have to get us old cars. So we'll be in the time period. Uh, I have to get young actors and, and I have to, you know, this was actors playing Bob's brothers. Uh, and there are th the actors are three brothers and then another guy and, and uh, who didn't look enough like them. But I needed, I needed a fourth brother. But I had to pull that stuff all together. I had to have some blood, the whole thing. So when you're doing this kind of stuff, it's crazy. We, we shot these different recreations in different time frames, just all over the place. You know, we're in the 1930s there in, in one scene, there for that car scene, it's the 1950s. Uh, we're in the 60s for the tower shooting, which we recreated, University of Texas tower shooting. Uh, for people that don't stuff. know, I think you were talking about the tower shooting earlier in relation to Gary yeah. Kent, but there's a connection to Bob Burns and Toby Hooper as well. Yeah, yeah. and I don't think many people have, have seen that before or, knew, or known it. I did Again, not know that they were going to University of Texas. Uh, Toby Hooper was when the shooting happened. That's wild. Charles yeah. Littman, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know Bob was there that day, but I'm interviewing his brother and he tells us, he said, oh, well, we thought at least Bob's not on campus this day, but he was. And so I thought it was amazing that the, I already knew Toby Hooper was there. I'd read accounts of Toby Hooper talking about seeing a, the police officer, uh, officer speed shot. Uh, 
So it seemed kind of important for our film. And that was a big deal to, for us to recreate that. Obviously we couldn't do that at the University of Texas because they would never give us permission to do it. So we had do to you think it. things like that, what do you think the effect of events like that or the, the, the event you recreated with the, the car death, him seeing that, do you think that all had an effect on Bob Burns? I do, yeah, sure. And I think, it, I think the tower shooting had an effect on both him and Toby Hooper. You know, this is, this is real horror. You know, it's the kind of horror that we see in our lives all the time that we see, you know, Uvalde shooting recently and all of the others, you know, it, it's a real thing. And they were right there in the middle of it. And so then they're creating this mood in these films that has to be that same thing they felt. And so I think that's important, you know, and it makes it, makes it more real and it makes it not just uh, glorification, you know, where there's some love of humanity there. What's really interesting to me is that, and, and I was thinking about this while watching the film, you know, you have Bob Burns on one hand and then you have uh, Rondo Hatton, and as we said, Rondo on the outside may have looked strange, but he was a, a really um, gregarious, uh, likable personality. And what's interesting to me is, you know, it sounds like Bob Burns, he only knew the Rondo that he saw in those movies as the Creeper. And he sort of, in a way, I wonder if he related more to the Creeper than he necessarily related to Rondo. Like, it, it sounds like he knew Rondo only in those movies. Whereas the real Rondo was a very different person in those movies. I was wondering if you could comment on that aspect of the documentary. I, you know, I think it may be a little both, but Bob was also obsessive. And so there was something of the game of Rondo because Rondo was, was in the background of a lot of movies that he still has not been given credit for. You can't go to IMDb and see a full listing of every film Rondo had in because he went to Hollywood, this director, Henry King invited him. He, Rondo was a newspaper reporter and was sent to the set of a movie called Hell Harbor. Henry King said, you know, I want you in the movie with that look of yours. And so he puts him in the movie and says, you come to Hollywood, I'll, I'll make you a star. I, I'll, I'll see that you work, which is where I think that he, Rondo and his second wife were really at. They were poor and they saw money. Uh, so, you know, Rondo was in the background of so many different movies. Bob would hunt for them. You know, we, we can do things a lot more easily now because of the internet, but Bob was searching for Rondo Hat. Really, this movie called, could be called My Search for Rondo Hat because uh, that's what he was, he was literally doing. He was sending out letters to find out things. Uh, you know, he was contacting collector groups but there's no internet to do all that kind of thing. And he would go to the movies and bring his camera. He would go to the Paramount Theater in Austin that showed old, old films. And he would take photos of Rondo in the background of the film just because he heard that he was in it. You know, he'd wait patiently for that. So there's a weird thing with that. Uh, you know, whether he was obsessed with nice Rondo or the Creeper, I, I don't know. I think it's probably a little bit both. Uh, when it comes down to it. But he liked that chase, you know, the hunt. 
Yeah, it's so fascinating seeing all those letters he wrote to people, you know, and he's tracking down everyone right down to Rondo's uh, wife, Maybell. Um, you know, he, he is very obsessive about it. Uh, but I, I guess what I was asking is, what, what do you think drew him um, specifically to Rondo Hatton? Uh, I know you said earlier that uh, a lot of it was just maybe seeing a little bit of himself in Rondo. Um, so let's dig into that a little bit more if we could. What, what do you think it was? Yeah. Well, I think he saw himself in the creeper, you know, and, and the way the creeper was an outsider. You know, and the creeper in those there's I think four films that that he's in. Uh, is it four? Or is it three? I'm not sure which it is. Uh, I think there's three. I think the Sherlock Holmes one, Pearl of Death, House of Horrors, and then the Brute Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Brute Man was really an autobiographical story of Rondo. When you look at it, there's the football player and all that, and he goes through the whole thing. But I think Bob may have looked at those and seen that level of loneliness being rejected by society. And it reflected things that he felt about himself, about his own life. You know, I think it's as simple as that. So in regards to Rondo Hatton, uh, what do you think your film really says about Rondo? Because I know we've talked a lot about Bob Burns, but Rondo is a very interesting character. I mean, he has a yearly award named after him, the, the Rondo Hatton Awards. Um, so, I mean, he does yeah. have his place in film history and he's a very interesting figure because he is different than the characters he played. Um, and I think Rondo Hatton's wife in, in the movie, in those recreations, she really points that out to Bob Burns. She's like, you know, maybe uh, you should be writing about the love story between me and Rondo rather than you know, whatever right. else you're planning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Rondo was a guy, it, he, he did a last interview that appeared after he died. And he was talking about the fact that he could hide from the world because of his appearance. <clears throat> and it might be easier to do that, but he chose instead to go out and confront it. And, you know, confront people, talk to them, befriend them, show them that he is not a monster. Uh, and I think that is the essence of Rondo, that he was brave to do that. And he just, my, I come away from, from doing this movie, finding him to be a really kind person. Uh, he, he'd been in the war in World War I and during World War II, and after he would take soldiers into his home, uh, dis disabled soldiers who'd been hurt during the war and care for them and give them a place to live. Uh, and he, you know, supported a lot of charities and that kind of thing. And he would answer his fan mail uh, and he would answer his detractors as well and send them notes. He just seemed like a, like a good guy, you know, who, who had made the choice to live life. You know, it's I think very all... interesting too, because it sounds like, it sounds like he didn't go to Hollywood thinking, I'm going to be remembered for any of this. I'm just trying to make some quick cash. In a lot right. of ways, it, it sounds like really his love in life was journalism and, and talking to people and dealing with people, good and bad, and really understanding the world around him and exploring the world. Um, it wasn't so much about acting in movies for him necessarily. Yeah, and he continued to write. He would, While he was doing the movies, he was also working as a newspaper reporter in the Hollywood area. He wrote a script. I have a copy of the script that he wrote. 
that I probably nobody has really seen before uh, that I think Bob was probably given by May and I just made a copy of it from, you know, from the uh, Bob Burns papers. We got access to a lot of great stuff, you know, Bob Burns' papers. Uh, so yeah, he saw himself as a writer more than anything else. This was just a job to him. But he was on the verge, and I think they may have realized that. He, he and his wife May may have uh, realized that it was about to happen. And then he died, you know. One question that I'm left with while watching this movie, and there's just maybe one or two more things I wanted to cover, but this is one of them. What do you think Rhonda would have thought of Bob Burns, maybe this obsessive quest that Bob went on to, you know, uh, reach uh, Rondo Hatton? Even it, it's almost like he reaches him in a weird spiritual way by accepting that Hall of Fame uh, ceremony yeah. for Rondo. But what do you think Rondo would have thought of that? Like if they had met, what, what do you think uh, would have been the interaction? I think Rhonda would have wanted to give Bob a big hug. <laughs> and Bob would have stiffened up at, at the same time. You know, I think, he, I think Rhonda would feel a little bad for Bob, you know, a little empathetic for what he's going through, was going through in life. Uh, but he would have tried to connect with him because that was his whole deal. I mean, I think that Rhonda knew how to connect with other people and Bob did not. So... Bob would have been Bob would have been grinning and uh, standing back a little bit. You know, he would have been incredibly pleased. As as I as I think he was to meet Mrs. Hat, uh, to track her down and, and meet her. That's as close as he was going to get, and he did it. So that's kind of cool. In a lot of ways, while watching the documentary, I'm reminded of the old um, James Wills version of uh, Frankenstein, which uh, it's a very interesting movie because I think. The fact that gay, uh, James Wills was, you know, basically a, a closeted gay director, I think he probably empathized a lot with the creature in that film played by Boris Karloff. But I, I can see parallels uh, to Frankenstein's monster from that movie in both Bob and in Rondo, because I think on one hand you have the creature not really being like evil. Really, he's a gentle monster in some ways, um, but also the monster can't really connect um, with other people. And that's sort of the parallel you see Bob, between the monster yeah. and, and Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the one with the girl and the flower? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's exactly yeah, I what just, I was thinking of where he accidentally yeah, throws the that. girl yeah. into the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a, that, that's such a, that's such a memorable scene that you're talking about there because it's both empathy and cruelty. Right. Right. So the, the last thing I wanted to cover here was, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to spoil the documentary, but one of the most effective parts of the film is that third and final act where you're showing the parallel ends mm -hmm. of Rondo on one hand and Bob on another. And I'm curious, what do you think people are going to get out of that? Because they both die, I think, in tragic ways, but... They're very different. I think Rondo dies with the woman he loves and she wants him to keep going, but he really just can't, you know, the disease has got to him. Whereas Bob is like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to deal with, with this cancer. I'm going out on my own terms. Right. Um, and what do you, what do you, what do you think those parallel ends reveal about maybe the human condition? 
I think maybe just that we don't want to be alone, you know, and Bob is on the phone for a long time. Uh, and, and, and I know who's on the other side end of the line. Uh, we never tell you who that is, but uh, that is that is the uh, one person who knew that he was going to do it, uh, and she's the one that you hear on hear on audio, and she shows you all the pictures. You know what I'm talking about? The one who the one who found the who lived with him for a while, uh, I, and I'm blanking on her name. Uh, I can't think of it. And she's no longer with us either. So we had to do that in an interesting way. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's about that, about you know, wanting to connect with other people. And maybe that's part of what we're supposed to do as human beings, is learn to do that. Because we come into this world alone and we're leaving alone, you know, no matter what. So as much as you can connect, the better. You know, it's interesting with that scene because uh, I hope it's not apparent to people, but it is, they're filmed in the same place, in the same room. <clears throat> we are directed it and changed its appearance. The shower disappears. Uh, the furnishings change, but it's basically the same place. Uh, and it is very much like where both of them met their end. I'm probably saying too much with that. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, too, because in some ways throughout the film, I, I was left with this impression of, you know, as you said earlier, Brondo is the person who looks strange on the outside, but on the inside, he's pretty normal. Whereas Bob is, you know, normal on the outside, but maybe a little bit strange on the inside. But I also think there's this element of, I think there's a lot of a darker street to Bob Burns, not, not in like an evil way, but in like a, he just has this morbid sense of humor and, and sort of doesn't know how to connect to people. Whereas Rondo, I think is almost like the optimist. Whereas I think Bob Burns may be the pessimist a little bit. And I think we see yeah. that come out at the end. I think so. So I think our ending Bob is somewhat hopeful. How so? Just well, you know, talking about, and some of this stuff is stolen from my son when he was younger. Uh, some of the, <clears throat> the writing there was straight from my son uh, that, you know, we should have ice cream at, at funerals uh, and it should be Neapolitan or the life and death and the, and, and the love in between or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it went. Uh, and so I think there is a level of optimism to that. Uh, and the optimism for Bob maybe is that he made choices himself. You know, so he chose to leave this world instead of letting something take him down. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I defend suicide that much personally, but I think that's a little bit of, of Bob in that scene. Do you think there's an irony to the fact that, you know, Bob Burns seemed to have thought that he couldn't connect to people, but the irony seems to be that a lot of people uh, cared about him. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like uh, ultimately, uh, you know, he was talking to people like Ken from Cinema Wasteland who runs that on a weekly basis. It sounds like he did have 
a, a pretty decent social network. Uh, he maybe did. he would be looking at, at, at uh, down from the heavens at his funeral and being like, oh, I guess I did have a lot of friends. Yeah, can talk to him every week. Uh, and I don't know if you saw the movie at Cinema Wasteland, but I keep seeing reviews and saying the sound was horrible in this movie. It's because you saw it at Cinema Wasteland. No offense. Uh, but yeah, the sound is not horrible in the movie. Uh, but I, I just saw something t- this morning where somebody was reviewing from Cinema Wasteland from our screening there. The sound is not that bad. <laughs> do, do you think that is uh, something that, that is sort of um, interesting there? Because like I said, you do include that funeral bit at the end uh-huh. and it, it does seem like he connected more with people than maybe he realized. Totally more than he realized. Yeah. I mean, people like, people like Ken from Cinema Wasteland, you know, they talked all the time. He said, Ken told me they talked once a week. Uh, and Bob had a ton of other people and he had a deal of going to, to Chinese buffets. He liked to go with friends and eat Chinese buffet. He was cheap. So he wanted the buffet. Uh, but this was a regular thing. And he was on the phone talking to people all the time. So he was not, he may have been lonely, but he was not alone. And there were, there were a lot of people that liked him. I mean, I think he had difficulty finding traditional romantic love in his life. Yeah, that really comes out at the end too, where you know he's working on a script about uh, a woman yeah. who falls in love with an older man, yeah. Yeah, so it's tough, you know? I like- it's interesting too, real, real quick if I could. Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, you, you talk a little bit about the documentary about Texas Chainsaw called uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking mm-hmm. Truth, where you know, Bob famously goes off about, yeah, I didn't really like this film. Now. I thought it was too over the top. Yeah. And you have Toby Hooper say to the director of that, I didn't realize Bob hated me that much. It sounded like Toby was hurt by it. Um, so, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, Toby liked him a lot. And so did a lot of other people. And maybe Bob didn't see that all the time. I think that was his issue. Yeah. They were a little afraid of him at the same time that they would piss him off because he was so precise. And other people may not have stood up to Toby Hooper, but Bob clearly had no problem with that. You know, and they, so they kind of tussled a little bit, verbally tussled uh, over the making of Chainsaw. It's fascinating to me because I've heard stories from people like Gunnar Hansen about the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And one thing I always hear was, A, that they were served pot brownies um, oh, on yeah. the set. <laughs> Gunnar Hansen, or maybe it was Marilyn Burns would say, yeah, Bob and, and Toby would just argue for hours about one shot or how to do one thing. <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, yeah. in conclusion, what do you hope that my listeners get out of this conversation? What do you hope they get out of watching uh, Rondo and Bob, which I believe is available on Amazon streaming and also iTunes, YouTube. Yeah. YouTube, iTunes, uh, on demand services for cable and satellite. Soon to be on Tubi, uh, it, that's in the process. That's the next wave. I hope they get something about the creative process, you know, and what it means to be a creative person. Because that's, that's something we haven't talked about, but that's an underlying thing as well. Uh, and Could I you see explain that my, more? How, how do you well, see it as being about the creative process? Um, this notion that you can make things from nothing. That was Bob. Bob could go into a thrift store and come out with the parts that he could put together to make something that's very elaborate. 
uh, I feel like we did the same thing making this movie. You know, we had to take all these parts and put them together. Uh, whether you find it pretty or ugly is up to the viewer, I suppose. But there's the whole notion that uh, I think creativity sets you free. And that is what it did for Bob. As much as Bob was happy in his life, I think it, he was happy when he was making things, when he was creating. And that, you know, and that's not a bad way to live. Gary Kent, same thing. He's, his message is go find this thing you like to do and go do it, make stuff. You know, if you go make stuff, uh, you can't listen to critics. By the time critics are criticizing you, you should be making new stuff and you should continue the process because you should be doing it for you. Uh, and I think that I hope is part of the message that comes through. Rondo created a life for himself, a happy life. And he had to change his goals because of his appearance and because of physical limitations that it, that it brought on as well. But I think he had a happy life. And I can't say that Bob completely had a happy life, but I think he had a, a rich life because of his ability to create. So... Yeah, it's the Rondo Hatton aspect of the film is really fascinating to me, too, because I, I think Rondo is kind of proof that, you know, uh, whatever adversities you may have in life, I mean, you, you can still have a, a pretty decent life and, you know, people will like you if you're just not, you know, if you're not an asshole and you're an affable person, right. you know, yeah. you, you can go quite far. Rondo is a good example of, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Of, of ignoring what people's expectations of him are and just going out and confronting the world and, you know, being a good example for other people, which I think he was. I, I hope that somebody will do a movie devoted, a feature film devoted just to Rhonda. That, that's my expectation that that will happen soon. How much do you think, so Bob didn't necessarily have a romantic relationship, but Rondo did. And I think at times you show in the movie that May, his, his wife, really sort of pushed Rondo. You know, instead of, instead of being afraid of, of, of this little girl being terrified you, of you, say boo. And he does. And then the girl right, laughs. True totally true yep. story. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah but totally how much do you think the movie is about, you know, maybe it was that significant other that helped Rondo get out of his, his shell in some ways, or, or at least helped him go further than he otherwise would have. Whereas I, I feel like Bob, maybe if he would have had someone like that, maybe things would have turned out differently. I think so. I think you, I think you hit it there, but, but it was harder to get past the shell of Bob uh, than it was for Rondo. So, which is ironic, you know, because Rondo had this shell, this seemingly unattractive shell, uh, but Bob had a tougher one. He had more of an emotional shell that people couldn't get through. Uh, yeah, he would be well-served if he had... He had loves in his life, but, you know, he didn't let them in close enough. And, and there, were, there were others that we didn't cover in the film. Was uh, he someone that maybe was afraid of getting hurt because of his relationship was with his mother? Do you think that was a little bit of it? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. He, he had the expectation that he would be rejected, yeah. I think that's that's a valid way to look at it. So I, I have to ask, uh, just on a lighter note, 
what was up with that deep throat Linda Lovelace uh, pinball machine? Oh, he made that. So we're making, okay, we start making this movie. And the first things people we need to talk to are Bob's brother and Bob's attorney. It's the game. We talked to these people and, and I said, who else should we talk to? And they said, you must talk to Ed Toutant. He was his big buddy and supporter. Ed Toutant is on the top 10 uh, list still of game show winnings. He won more than a million dollars in, in game show winnings, close to two. I think he's like number six on the list. Finally go to Ed Toutant's house in Austin, meet with him, and he shows us the pinball machine. He owns it. And I said, okay, we're going to shoot uh, Bob Burns interviewing Toby, uh, uh, Gunnar Hansen to be Leatherface right here in this room. Uh, and then uh, sadly, Ed Toutant got sick. He had a brain tumor and he died. Uh, and before he died, he, he gave that uh, pinball machine to me to sell to help fund the film. And it's now in a private collector's hands. But Bob Burns made that. So he and made Bob a was, pinball machine based on the comedy porno. Right. <laughs> and, it, and it's film, it, it's been in uh, the films, it's been in his film, uh, Mongrel, uh, in a different form in Scream Test. It's in uh, Ed Neal's movie, uh, Future Kill. Yeah, I so, think, uh, Ed Neal, for people that don't know, he was the hitchhiker in Texas right. Chainsaw. He later did the movie Future Kill. And I think Bob worked on Future Kill as well. He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he and Ed were friends. Uh, so it's now in private hands. But yes, we, and we felt so fortunate. I thought this was incredible. This was early on in the filmmaking process. It's like, oh, there's the actual pinball machine, you know? And, and uh, Gunnar Hansen's memoir, he talks about going to Bob, <clears throat> going to Bob's office, and there's the pinball machine. So it's like, oh, yeah, perfect, perfect. So, so we ended up filming that, uh, you know, just happenstance. So what, what is next uh, for you personally? Uh, what, are you working on anything else? Um, I am in the second uh, revision of a book about the Ross sisters. <clears throat> and they were contortionists in the 1930s and 40s. They're the most, con the, the most famous contortionists from the United States. Uh, and I, there's a very famous video that's on YouTube from the movie called Broadway Rhythm of them performing. And I, I swear you've seen it because everybody has seen it. Uh, just, just go to YouTube and look up the Ross sisters, R-O-S-S, uh, and, and stick with the video because there's nice, cute song and dance in the beginning, and then it gets weird. Uh, and I wanted to find out their story. They were from West Texas. Uh, and I have, uh, I, I am finishing the two-year book project of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop of Denver. Uh, I'm flying in for the graduation on Saturday. Uh, and I'm in, in the second draft of it, basically. Uh, fascinating story of what happened to them. You know, it's, it's interesting because you, you have that in common with Bob Burns because when Bob was writing for that one paper, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it now, he was always interested in covering, covering the story of like um, odd personalities in, in Austin, like, Texas, like, like the, the yeah. transvestite uh, yeah, that became a, a big name in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, that's Barbette. 
Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Barbette is from very close to where I live. Uh, and, they, and I went and saw a show uh, at a museum about Barbette the other day. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yes, I, I get obsessed. And I get obsessed with, uh, I get obsessed with stories of people, so. Also, I have to ask, are, are we ever gonna be able to see uh, Bob Burns' movie, uh, Scream Test, or is that unlikely to happen? I, you know- You have I, seen it, I know you've seen it, but. Yes, yeah, Scream, Scream Test and also Bob's short film, The Man Who Loved Inflatable Women, uh, which both- Both of which both, appear in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both of those, I contend, and Tutant, the guy I was talking about, was the sole investor for both of those. And so I contend that his family has the rights to them. And I would like to put them on a Blu-ray of Rondo and Bob, if, if you know people are agreeable to it. I don't know, I'm no pro about the whole rights situation. So, um, but yeah, I would like to do that, to be able to put them out, just so they get in the world for Bob, you know, that people can see them. They're they're on videotape. They're not, you know there's no there's no film of them that I've seen. So somebody doing some big re release of the film would want the film aspect. I think uh, where I'm going to give crappy video out out to the world just so they can see it. You know, yeah, I, I would love to see Scream Test in particular just because. Yeah. From what you show of it, it seems like a very funny, comical concept. You know, want to be filmmakers, make a movie and everything keeps going wrong with the special effects and whatnot. And everyone dies. Right. <laughs> and I guess that's an example of Bob Burns, very um, unusual sense of humor. <laughs> right. And maybe a comment about Bob Burns is that, you know, maybe that's what he that's the curse. The curse of Bob Burns, you know, that, that maybe that's his career, that things just fall apart when he's trying to make stuff. Well, especially after he made the movie Mongrel, which I guess didn't really do that well. Yeah. No, it didn't. It didn't do well at all. And Scream Test was never released. Mm -hmm. So it's never been seen by more than the people who uh, participated in it. Some of them have copies of it, uh, but that's about it. I think I got it listed on IMDb. I don't think it had even been on IMDb before that. Yeah, I, it's on IMDb and it's listed as completed. Uh, mm -hmm. But you're one of the few people that have seen it. So hopefully that will get yeah. a chance to see it one day. And uh, Joe O'Connell, oh. I know I kept you long here about an hour and a half. So I want to thank oh. you for bearing with me. And sure. uh, anything else you want to say to my listeners, how they can watch the film uh, or just anything else in closing? Just, uh, you know, uh, get out there and see it. it uh, Amazon Prime is probably the easiest, uh, you know, but it's out there in, in, in various places. Uh, and it will be on Tubi soon. If you're if you don't want to pay uh, and you want to watch ads, uh, I hear Tubi is good to independent filmmakers as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we have a good sales agent. They're getting it out everywhere. We will screen. We we did a long film festival tour, uh, screened some great places. We're going to be at uh, I can't think of the name of it. We're going to be at another film festival in Spain in a couple of months. Uh, as my sales agent works to sell rights. European rides. So, well, hey, Joe O'Connell, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope everyone checks out Rondo and Bob, and also uh, Danger God, which I believe is playing on Tubi now. Yeah. Thank, thank you very you. much. All right. Take it easy.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you're enjoying our spooky season episodes, and that you'll check out Joe O'Connell's documentary, Rondo and Bob. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax... You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices to the part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween. <laughs>